Well, hi, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to Recovery Jam, Janet and Melissa. <laughs> um, I know it was a big surprise. Um, so um, my name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York. And, um, you know, um, first of all, welcome to the new people. We're really happy that you found your way to us, that, you've, that you're joining us tonight. Um, and we hope that you hear good information here. So this is an awesome chapter that we're going to discuss called, you know, a vision for you. And it starts off, um, for most folks, page 151, drinking means conviviality, companionship, and colorful imagination. It means release from care, boredom, and worry. It is joyous intimacy with friends and a feeling that life is good but not so with us in those last days of heavy drinking. The old pleasures were gone. They were but distant memories and never could we recapture the great moments of the past. Okay, so it's interesting that it starts off for most normal folks because we find out, you know, early on, we're not like normal men, right? In fact, that's the delusion that we are like normal men early on has to be smashed. And, you know, um, so normal people don't just eat for nutrition. You know, I used to think normal people eat for nutrition. And my problem is, is that I eat for other reasons. Not true. Normal people eat for fun, for intimacy, for release from boredom, for worry and care. Normal folks can also eat when they're restless, irritable, and discontent. In fact, many of them do, you know, and I, you know, there's nothing um, so uncommon about, you know, eating ice cream when you've broken up with a boyfriend, when a bro boyfriend breaks up with you every, it's like common, right? Um, and, and, or people go out and drink, right? Like their hearts get broken, they lose a job, they go out and, and they get loaded, right? That's actually the behavior of many normal people. It's might probably not the most healthiest behavior, but it's kind of normal. The problem is, is that um, in my step one realization is that I can no longer treat food like normal people do. Can't use it like an event. I don't engage in recreational eating. Normal people can hang around the dinner table. They can enjoy casual eating. You know, they socialize, we go to cocktail parties and happy hours and, and other ways that normal people socialize with food, it's like the background music for them. People can have a few bites um, and they can still hear the conversation around them. They ate to enhance the gathering. That's the way normal people use food. But when I engaged in casual eating, the background music of the food it gets so loud that it's the only thing I hear. I don't hear the conversations around me. I can't even attend to the conversations around me. All I could hear was the chatter in my brain about the food, you know? And yes, it was then a sad realization, right? That eating socially, spontaneous eating for me, you know, um, was no longer going to be something I could do. And it wasn't because some sponsor told me I couldn't do it, but because I had conceded to my innermost self that I had crossed a line and that there was nothing social anymore about my eating. 
but the disease tried to convince me by appealing to my sense of nostalgia. You know, the human desire for connection to my culture, to my family, to my friends, but my recovery informed me that I cannot eat to socialize. For me, eating is antisocial. It's an antisocial event. I can't use food for connection and intimacy because I actually disconnect and I can't feel close with the people near me when it's them and food, right? In fact, I remember going out, you know, one of my stories of, of that I share is that I went out to dinner with a very close friend of mine who was experiencing the breakup of her marriage. And I vaguely recall her crying. And yet my mind was locked on the bread basket on the table. So I heard every third word she said. I had a piece of the bread, um, which was not part of my food plan, which wasn't what I could eat safely. And my mind locked in on it. And, and all I kept thinking was, will she notice if I eat another piece? She's so upset, she won't notice. Like, that's all I heard. And then I remember thinking, ooh, she's so upset, she's probably going to want dessert. And that is antisocial, to be sitting with somebody who you love and care about, hearing about her crumbling marriage, but food is the master. And so it blots out my ability to connect, and it blots out my ability to care. You know, so then how do I connect then, right? That's really what this chapter is. If I can't use food, if I can't use alcohol, if I can't use a substance, how do I connect and what's to become of me? And so I think this chapter could really be called, okay, now what am I supposed to do? Like now what? And page 152, paragraph one says, yes, I'm willing, but am I can be consigned to a life where I should be stupid, boring, and glum? like some righteous people I see. I know I must get along without liquor, but how can I have you a sufficient substitute? You know, and so, yeah, it's often we think early on that life without food and alcohol is gonna be dull. And we're afraid that we're gonna be stupid and boring and glum without all that stuff. Um, you know, for me, I remember feeling like, how was I gonna fit in with the other like cool, New York suburban moms that got together and drank wine. Like that's what, you know, that's what everybody seemed to do. Drink wine and eat salsa and chips. And like, how am I going to fit in with people? Um, but I was willing because, you know, what brought me into this program originally was I ate until my, my gums bled, right? I ate until my mouth bled and there was nothing cool <laughs> about eating that way. There was nothing social and fun about eating that way. Um, you know, I worked the steps and what we find, there is a sufficient substitute. In fact, it's even better. We get a spiritual awakening. Um, you know, only an addict, I would say, in the throes of the food or newly abstinent believes that they're more exciting when they're eating. Like, that, that's a lie. There's nothing that was fun and exciting about the way that I ate. You know, how exciting is life when you're laying on the couch for me or sitting in my car eating alone, you know, um, looking outside the window always like at what the rest of the world was doing. So what was to become my substitute? 
um, a relationship with God. That's really what this is all. This is all about forming a relationship with God. Page 152, paragraph two, it says, yes, there is a substitute and it's vastly more than that. We get more than just a mere substitute. It's a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous. And there you will find release from care, boredom, and worry. Life will mean something at last. So what do we get? We get lives with meaning and purpose. Um, and I say like, I got meaning, purpose, and a mission. I got assigned a mission. You know, I came to OA originally, not because I was bored or worried or thought that I lacked imagination. I didn't think that my life was lacking meaning or purpose. I came simply for me because I was fat and miserable and I knew I needed something and yet I couldn't do what I knew I needed to do. I knew I needed to do something and yet I didn't have the power to do it. And truly, I didn't think that I was living a set, you know, an unsatisfactory life. I didn't think that was even my problem. And I do remember putting the food down and feeling lonely and unsure. Like, how am I going to go on vacation? How am I going to take family camping trips? For me, like vacations meant huge meals out and camping was marshmallows, you know, and eating late night around a fire. Would I even enjoy those events without food? How was I going to show up at a party? Who was I going to talk to? What was I going to do? And I discovered, like all of us do, that life is more enjoyable when food is not your master. I found out, you know, who I was going to be because food used to tell me what I like to do. When food is your master, food says, do this, you like this. Don't do that, you don't like that. And I think, you know, we recover and we get this beautiful world where we can find that we have other interests. And I find out that I was gonna be useful and I was gonna give rather than take. And I was gonna share the recovery I found. On page 153, paragraph one, it says, how can they rise out of such misery, bad repute and hopelessness? And the practical answer is that since these things have happened among us, they can happen with you. Should you wish them above all else and be willing to make use of our experience, we are sure that they will come. The age of miracles is still with us. And I just love that, right? So we have, miracles are not something like old past, you know, something you read about in, in the Bible only but we actually experience miracles right here and now. And how do we know that? Our own recovery proves that, right? If I asked people to like raise their virtual hand, if you have experienced a miracle, yeah, it's like it's among us right here and now, our own recovery proves that. I say I'm a walking, breathing miracle. I really and truly feel this deep down in my heart and it's available for anyone but there's two conditions. One, you must wish them above all else. Meaning you have to want this and put it at the front of your life. And you have to use the experience of others. You have to follow directions and examples, which is why we don't water down our course of action. 
which is why we don't negotiate directions that work. We don't make them easier and we don't cut corners. You know, the recovery that I found that I've been given, freedom from the food and from my broken thinking, relieved of obesity, I've let go of more than 160 pounds and I've lived in a healthy body and a healthy mind for years now. And today, if a friend talks to me about an issue that they're having, I can hear them, even if there's bread on the table, even if they decide to order dessert. Food doesn't own me. I go camping with my family. I enjoy, I enjoy singing around the campfire now. I go to water parks. I have more energy and enthusiasm at 53 years of age than I've ever had because I've experienced a miracle. And what is a miracle? It's an act of God. And that's what this is all about. The 12 steps are a set of directions that create a miracle. And it's an invitation for God to enter our lives and change us entirely. It's a complete willingness to transform. And I've witnessed this in my own life and in the lives of so many others. In fact, helping others to experience this miracle is now our mission. That's our job. A vision for you is a direction for how to live now, which is we live the rest of our lives helping others get well. That's the vision. Bottom of page 153 to the top of page 154, right? You could read the the whole thing, right? Bottom of page 153 talks about, you know, one of our, so that the best way of treating you to a glimpse of your future will be to describe the growth of this fellowship among us, how it is that we carry this message. And they give a brief account, right? Where a business man, right? It's Bill, he comes to a city and his business dealings, not so well. In fact, his trip came off terribly, badly. Had he been successful in his enterprise, he would have been set on his feet financially, which at the time seemed vitally important. So at the time, to him, human perspective, his goals and desires seemed of the utmost importance. But his venture, did not go so well, wound up in a lawsuit, right? And he had hard feelings, controversy. Here he is, he's bitterly discouraged, right? And he's broke, he can't pay his bill. And he thinks, hmm, I'm lonely, right? I'm lonely and if I don't take some drinks, I might not have the courage to scrape an acquaintance and I'm going to have a lonely weekend. So he's really, he's shaky and he's feeling bad for himself, right? What happens? He has this, uh-oh, he realizes he's on shaky ground and what does he do? His, well, he picks up a church directory. You know, he goes, he picks up a directory and he looks for a church. He picks up in the hotel, he goes to a phone booth and he calls the directory. And it says here, his sanity returned and he thanked God, selecting a church at random 
from the directory, he stepped into a booth and lifted the receiver. So his sanity returned, meaning it's sane to recoil. He's describing the recoil. Because guys, sometimes, even in this vision, you might get a temptation, right? That might happen, but we recoil, we withdraw, we pull back. It's sane to recoil. The sanest thing we can do when life gets us worked up, when problems knock on our door, we go find someone to help. This story is a sharp contrast from Fred on page 41, who he had a business dealing and it went well. And what's the difference between the two of them? Fred had no spiritual experience and Bill did because Fred picked up the drink, right? He, you know, and we know it didn't go so well for them, but Bill remained sober. And it actually, here's it is, it turned out to be a wonderful thing that his business dealings didn't go so well that day. Because in his despair, he reached up, reached out and wound up as a result meeting Dr. Bob. And to me, I love this. This is evidence that I don't really know what's best for me, right? In fact, I found out my story is what really brought me in earnest to surrender was I started having debilitating panic attacks, which I thought were the worst thing in the world, right? Never mind being over 300 pounds, that was pretty bad. But I reached a point where I always thought myself smart and I always could rely on my brain. I always felt like my thinking was sharp. My thinking was sharp, but I reached a point where I got horrific panic attacks and I, and I was terrified. It scared me because I thought, oh my God, I can't even think straight anymore. And what I found out is that it forced me to finally admit that I was in trouble. And it was a gift, just like Bill's business dealings going going poorly turned out to be a gift. I actually have come to discover morbid obesity and panic attacks was the beautiful gift because it formed me, it forced me into needing God in a way that I didn't need God before or I didn't think I did. And now I've got a relationship with God, which I don't know, I don't know that I would have found I don't know that I would have felt the necessity if not the, the this disease. So I don't know what's best for me. That's part of my vision too, that I don't know what's in my own best interest. Bottom, uh, page 155 describes Bob's predicament. We're gonna talk for a moment about Bob, but not too much. He was formerly able and respected and he was reaching the lowest point of alcoholic despair, right? Jeopardy, um, wife ill, children distracted, bills in arrears, standing damaged, desperate desire to stop, but saw no way for he had earnestly tried many avenues of escape. Painfully aware of being somehow abnormal, the man did not fully realize what it meant to be alcoholic. And to me, that describes powerlessness and unmanageability. You can have all the painful consequences and a strong desire to stop and yet still be unable. No amount of willpower 
could stop his drinking for long. Because for us guys, willpower is not sufficient power. Willpower has an expiration date. And the worst part of this expiration date is that it's an unpredictable expiration date. It's a power source that just when you need it most, it, it's not there, right? So a spiritual experience is absolutely necessary, but, but he felt the price was too high. And I just wanna talk for a minute about this idea about a reputation, because I also found out in a vision for you that I can't be too concerned with reputation. When I'm concerned with reputation, it means the beliefs or opinions that are generally held about someone or something are more important than my integrity. And, and, that's, and that was the predicament that Bob, that he found himself in. But I'm gonna leave that aside because I know that on Thursday, Janet's gonna spend time talking about Dr. Bob. So what I do wanna say is that Bob and Bill went on helping others together. And that's our vision. When Bob got well, he found that he had a mission and that he and Bill could work on this mission together. And that's our vision. Page 157, you know, um, it talks about putting this man, they come to meet another one, right? And they put him in a private room, will be down. And two days later, a future fellow of Alcoholics Anonymous stared glassily at the stranger beside his bed. Who are you fellows and why this private room? I was always in a ward before and said one of the visitors, we're giving you a treatment for alcoholism. And hopelessness was written large on this man's face as he replied, oh, but that's no use. Nothing would fix me. I'm a goner. The last three times I got drunk on the way home from here, I'm afraid to go out the door. So one of the important things that I get from reading this is how they treated this man. They took care of him. They put him in a private room. Remember in the chapter, Working With Others, we're told to be patient with people and to remember that they're ill. So they didn't send him off to go sober up on his own alone somewhere. Remember that when struggling people reach out, we help them. What did they do? They talked to him. But he was not cheered up though. They didn't cheer him up, right? We don't give people false cheer, false hope. Rather, they told over and over about the problem. We don't tell people that they're going to be all right right? We don't say, there now, there now, it's all going to be okay. And directions for how we carry the message is clear, that we emphasize the hopelessness and the mental twist. This is where people begin to identify. They hear themselves in the stories of torment. He identified and said, yes, that's me, the very image. You fellows know your stuff all right, but I don't see what good it'll do. You fellows are somebody. I was once, but I'm a nobody now. From what you tell me, I know more than ever I can't stop. And what did they do? At this, the visitors burst out laughing. 
you know, and, and the guy was, I think he was like offended. Like, what are you laughing about? Damn little to laugh about. And I think, why were they laughing? Well, partly because this guy is seeing them now as somebody's, which is pretty ironic, right? Um, but I think they're also happy because they can hear that he's taken a step one. And the admission of powerlessness is a starting point. Until that happens, nothing can happen, right? People have to reach that moment. So I know for myself, um, when I hear somebody and I speak to them and they, and they sound desperate, I am happy. Not because I'm a sadist. It's not like I want to hear people suffering, but because I know, oh, now, now they might be ready. Now they might really be ready. Um, you know, and so it says that, you know, he, um, this guy, it talks about him praying to God on hangover mornings, swearing that he would never touch another drop, but by nine o'clock, boiled as an owl. And the next day he found the prospect more receptive. He'd been thinking it over. And maybe you're right, he said, God ought, God ought to be able to do anything. And then he added, he sure didn't do much for me when I was trying to fix this booze racket alone. You know, and on the third day, the lawyer gave his life to the care and direction of his creator and said he was perfectly willing to do anything necessary. So, um, yes, he realized he couldn't do this alone. And he quickly went from steps one, two, and three. And we're told he never drank again. Um, Page 161, paragraph two, being wrecked in the same vessel, being restored and united under one God with hearts and minds attuned to the welfare of others. The things which matter so much to some people no longer signify much to them. How could they? This paragraph clearly defines what it means to have a spiritual awakening. Our minds and our hearts are focused on the welfare of others. That's what it means to have an awakening. Um, the things that used to interest me, the things that used to fulfill me and make me feel excited, they're not the same anymore. And it's something that sets me apart from other people as well. So yes, normal people can eat socially, but normal people although it's wonderful lots of normal people choose to help other people, normal people don't have to help others in order to survive. My survival depends on that. That's part of my vision. And I see this today as the greatest gift that I could have ever received. I cannot draw closer to others today by breaking bread together. For me, remember I said that eating is not social for me, right? But I undoubtedly draw closer to others by being of service. I feel much closer to other human beings now than I ever did before. And I don't need food to lubricate that, to make that, you know, to get that happening. Page 162, paragraph three, it says, thus we grow and so can you, though you be but one man with this book in your hand. We believe and hope it contains all you will need to begin. 
We know what you're thinking. You are saying to yourself, I'm jittering alone. I couldn't do that. But you can. You forget that you have just now tapped a source of power much greater than yourself. To duplicate with such backing, what we have accomplished is only a matter of willingness, patience, and labor. So what is it that we're afraid that we can't do on our own? Help other people get well and recover? And that's absolutely true. But we've tapped into a source of power that's much greater than us. So um, we're not doing it alone. And in fact, any time before we're going to speak, before I'm going to carry the message, before my hope is my prayer, right? Because I know that I need God in, or in this equation, is that you tell me who I'm supposed to help. You give me the words for those people. You show me, right? And that it's a matter of willingness, patience, and labor. So jittery, nervous, and unable to relax. When I'm jittery, I would say when I'm jittery, it's because I'm consumed with the future and with myself. Feeling jittery and alone, isolated in his sobriety. And I felt this way both in the food and out of the food. But if I live in agreement with my primary purpose, which is to carry the message to the still sick and suffering, then I don't need to feel jittery and alone. I know that when I'm afraid, I need only to turn towards my creator and I'm comforted. I get all the strength that I need. We get all the strength that we need. In page 164, still you may say, I will not have the benefit of contact with you who write this book. We cannot be so sure. God will determine that. So you must remember that your real reliance is always upon him. He will show you how to create the fellowship you crave. I guess I love this. God determines who comes in my life and who leaves my life. And ultimately, my reliance is always on God. People are people. I need fellowship, but God provides me with the fellowship that I crave. I found that no matter what problems I've experienced, God always puts people in my life who helped me through these hard times. And God also provides me with the people who I can pass my experience on to. And how has this happened? Through willingness, patience, and labor. Willing to be honest, not worshiping my reputation or public approval, honest about my past, honest about my present, patient. I say patience, is developing the ability to tolerate the discomfort I feel when I have to wait for something. That's what it means to be patient. Re delaying my gratification and allowing life to unfold rather than trying to force an outcome. Labor, labor. This program is work. It is work. Working with others working by giving service, but the work becomes irresistible. 
we long to do this work. In page 164, our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to you and come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. So how is God going to disclose things to me? Well, I'm told here, I'm going to need morning meditation, right? If I want to hear what God wants me to hear, I must set aside time for God. I must give God an opportunity to communicate with me. I have to have a prayer and meditation practice. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit and you will surely meet some of us who do trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. So God will reveal what I need to see and what my path is to be if I ask him, if I pray. And my prayer, how I can help others. That's the prayer. Step 11. If I stay close to God, I'm promised great events. If I abandon myself to God, meaning I give myself, I offer myself, right? That's step three. I say to God, I'm on your team. I want what you want. I want my thoughts to be your thoughts for me. I want what's in my heart to be what you want in my heart. I want my words to be the words you want me to say. And I admit my faults and I clear away my wreckage, four through 10, right? And I give freely, step 12. This is the path so I can trudge the road of happy destiny. And the word trudging means deliberate, slow, steady. It's not skipping and it's not dancing, right? It's not a sprint. When I read that, it lets me know that I can live happily through hard times as well as good times. That's my experience. I've continued to live a life, full life in recovery, loss and trials and pain and joy, right? But we no longer suffer. And to me, that's a beautiful promise. That's the vision that God has for all of us. And um, with that, I'll pass.